Well, I like real estate just because uh, I, I like the benefit of being able to uh, have a mortgage pay off real estate over time so that when I retire, I have something. I like the fact that it's boring. I want to be able to be uh, entertained and travel and do a lot of things in my retirement, and that boring investment of real estate allows me to do that. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1137-1137. This is Jason Hartman. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've got one of our investment counselors on the line today, and that is Doug. You've been hearing him on the show for the past 10 years or so. Doug, how you doing? I'm doing great today, Jason. Good. I know you've been busy with uh, doing a lot of portfolio makeovers for our clients lately, haven't you? Yeah, in fact, the part of the uh, portfolio review and the portfolio makeover, as we like to call it, that has actually been really insightful to a lot of people has been the idea of looking at a before and after return on equity for a portfolio. Because what I'm finding is that there's a lot of clients who have properties that have appreciated quite a bit. And of course, that's good. But what they're doing is they're thinking about their rate of return relative to the amount of cash that they initially put into the property. Right. Right. So here's the thing I want to say is that as the money becomes lazy, as it becomes sleepy, as you create equity in a property over time, which is great news, your return on investment declines and sometimes it declines rather dramatically. And a lot of people don't realize the hidden cost here of that loss of return on equity. And I'm going to talk about my opinion of return on equity as a metric period in a moment. But go ahead, Doug. Yeah, exactly. And so because I think the way that you've trained a lot of investors to think is in terms of return on investment, which is an excellent metric, which is where you say, okay, how much do you have to put into a property? What are you earning from it? And then what's that rate of return that you're earning? And I think that's most appropriate when you are evaluating whether to purchase an asset. Once you've already purchased an asset and own it and it starts appreciating, then return on equity starts becoming a more appropriate metric because you say, how much equity do you have in the property. So in other words, if I sold it and I extracted the equity, how much would I have? What is the new invested capital I have that's locked up in that asset? And as your equity increases, the return you're earning on that equity position starts going down. So the way that you keep your money working for you is you know, you either potentially sell, but ideally not just because you incur transaction costs when you sell that are really expensive, or potentially refinance. One way to refinance is with a new fixed rate mortgage. Or like one of the things that I've been working with one of my clients with is to actually look at a line of credit to refinance because he has a fixed rate mortgage that's at a really attractive rate. So if you pair that with a HELOC, now you can keep that asset of having a low fixed rate mortgage 
and then pair that with a way to extract the equity. And in this case, he's looking at a HELOC where he can pull up to 80% of value and then reinvest that into more properties. So now what he does is he extracts some of the equity from one property and reinvests it to create equity in other properties that are generating new returns because the amount of revenue he's generating from that property doesn't change. You know, Irregardless of what he does with his equity position, it has no impact on the price of the property, no impact on the revenue performance of the property. Okay, so I just want to say a couple things here, Doug. So the thing you have to realize is that whenever you own an asset, stock, bond, mutual fund, piece of real estate, gold coins, it doesn't matter what the asset is. Every day that you do not liquidate that asset, that you do not sell that asset, you're essentially buying it from yourself. And so if you've owned a property for 10 years and that property has appreciated and you still have the original financing in place, you've gained a lot of equity on that property. So the way you have to look at it is that now, 10 years later, you're buying the property from yourself. And because you have this additional equity in the property, you're essentially putting a lot of money down and you're not getting as much leverage as you might otherwise when you think of buying a new property. So that's the thing you have to think about is you're you're not renegotiating the deal, if you will. You're sticking with the the current deal, which is today, if you've got $50,000 of equity in the property, whereas if you bought it today, you might only put $25,000 of equity in it in terms of the minimal down payment. That's causing you to lose money. You're losing return on investment. And as I've said for the last 15 years, Doug, Many real estate investors either think they're winning or they think they're losing, and many times they're doing the exact opposite. They're completely wrong because they don't know how to do the math. They look at it from the point of, well, I've got good cash flow on the property, but the reason many times they have such good cash flow is because they have way too much equity stuffed up in that property, right? Exactly. I'm actually going to differ uh, in opinions with you a little bit so we can have a little bit of conflict Go going. For it. That is actually one of the things that the cap rate is useful for mm-hmm. because I know you're not a fan of cap rate. But one thing that cap rate does tell you is how effectively you can leverage a property. So, for example, if I'm buying a property that has a 7% cap rate with a 5.5% loan, that tells me that I will be able to arbitrage 1.5% on every additional dollar I can leverage. On the other hand, if I'm buying a property that has a cap rate that's, say, 5% and I'm at a 5% loan, I don't really gain a whole lot by leveraging it more. You know, so similarly to what you're saying is that you know, if you want to create a, a high cash-producing property, the best way to do that is to buy it with all cash and don't leverage it at all. But that's not going to give you your best overall performance. The best overall performance is going to be when you optimize your leverage. And the way that you do that is you make sure that you're earning that arbitrage spread, that the amount you're paying for the loan, if that's less than your cap rate, then you'll benefit from levering up the property. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So that isn't completely giving the whole picture, though, because it actually could be better than that when you 
put into place. You're just comparing cap rate to the interest rate you're paying on financing, Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. I'm looking at this from a cash from a cash performance perspective. Right, right, right. And so that's a lot of people do that. And, it, you know, it's a decent metric. It's a simple metric. But, Doug, as you and I both know, it doesn't include the um, arbitrage on leverage. It doesn't include inflation-induced debt destruction. And, uh, yeah. Jason, you always accuse me of being an engineer, so I'm just acting like an engineer. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. And the funny thing is you're not an engineer, but you no, are an analytical <laughs> creature. You have an MBA, and you're a corporate America-type guy, so... You've got a lot of that very analytical stuff. Folks, if you ever want to look at a really confusing spreadsheet, just ask Doug to create one for you. First of all, it'll take him like four and a half minutes to create a 36-page spreadsheet that you will never be able to understand unless you're like him. (laughs) He speaks a different language. I haven't even shown you the complicated stuff, Jason. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I am in fear of, of that. <laughs> but finish up on the topic of portfolio reviews, portfolio makeovers, and let's wrap it up and get to today's, the rest of today's show. Sure. So basically, the thing that I like to do with my clients that every one of our clients should be doing with their investment counselors is just do a regular review of your portfolio to see where do you have equity that you can redeploy to make it continue working harder for you. That's the way that you're really going to win the game game is when you can start compounding your properties into more properties and just continue getting that high rate of return from your equity. No question about it. You know, folks, if you have a business and if you have a lazy employee, you would be wanting them out, right? (laughs) And that's the idea. You don't want lazy employees. And similarly, you don't want lazy equity or lazy money or sleepy equity or sleepy equity, what lazy, sleepy, whatever. The concept is the same. It's kind of like that employee example, Doug. So as the employee maybe becomes more comfortable over time with their job, you know, they kind of just natural human nature sets in. They kind of lose their edge. They're not as motivated as they used to be. Everything's working out. They're making money. They feel secure. And they get a little lazy, a little complacent. Your money is doing the same thing to you, folks. It's getting complacent. It's becoming ungrateful. It's not earning as much return for you as it could. So Ungrateful money. Ungrateful money. Ungrateful money, lazy money, sleepy money. Don't let it happen. Be forever vigilant to make sure your money is working for you. So, Doug, that was a great little talk about that. Thanks. Tell your money to go out and get a job and don't let them come back home and live in your basement. That's right. No over-entitled money allowed here. All right. right. Great talking with you, Jason. All right. Likewise, happy investing. Let's get to the rest of the show. Hey, I'd like to introduce someone whose voice you've heard on the show before, and that is Chad. And we have a fantastic little YouTube raffle for you. Chad, what's it all about? Yes, we have an exciting opportunity coming up for you to be able to win a free ticket to meet the masters coming up in March or a $500 travel allowance. Here's what you need to do to be able to win one of those things. We will be selecting a winner on March 4th when the contest ends. And all you have to do is go to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate. Subscribe if you haven't already then pick any video to watch. There's a variety of categories, everything about real estate investing from finding the right markets, analyzing real estate deals, the economics of real estate investing, property management, financing. There's a whole wide range of videos that you can choose from and choose one that you think would be interesting to you. Watch it and then go to the comments section 
and comment just a quick one sentence comment on something that you learned from that video and make sure to include the hashtag JHLive in the comment and that will enter you into this raffle. Okay, so that's real easy. You just go to youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate, subscribe to the channel, and then watch any video you like and make a comment below the video of one thing you learned, include the hashtag JHLive, and that will enter you in the raffle to win a free ticket to meet the masters or a $500 travel allowance. This ends on March 4th, so be sure to get it done before March 4th. We look forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters. Thanks for joining us, Chad. Thanks. It's my pleasure to welcome Rohit Tower to the show. He is a futurist, a global futurist and founder of Fast Future Publishing. He works with global businesses to help them understand and create the future. He's an award-winning speaker and noted for his provocative content. His latest book is entitled A Very Human Future. He also has a few others, including The Future of Business. Let's dive into some fascinating conversation today. Rohit, welcome. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And Thank you for having me on the show. Pleasure is all mine. Are you coming to us from uh, London? Yes, in London, which is very cold and dark this afternoon. Yeah, well, that's uh, London weather for you. <laughs> Greetings from sunny Florida, <laughs> in my case. So sorry, sorry if I make you envious there. When we look at some of these issues about the future, I think a fundamental question that I'd like to start with is that the concept of value, what creates value in an economy is a changing, shifting thing, isn't it? Because when we look at what will be the opportunities of the future, first we need to examine what is value, maybe defining it, understanding how it's changing, etc. Absolutely right. And, and I think there are so many different perspectives on value as well, depending on where you're coming from. Right now, there's a philosophy, if you like, in investment markets, that if your company is investing in technology, then you're definitely creating value for the future. But what we can see is that there isn't a totally direct correlation between firms' investment in technology and their performance in the future. So that I think it's much more about, are you investing in the ideas, the business models, the processes that will, in a sense, create value for your end customers in the future? Can you show that what you're creating will stand out? And we're seeing this right now. We're seeing in retail, we're seeing in financial services that a lot of what we thought was future-proofed investment is actually turning out to be not that effective. We're seeing you know, around the world retailers closing at a rapid pace. We're seeing financial services firms saying they're seeing no growth or, or a shrinkage in revenues. And this is largely down to the fact that they haven't really thought about how to align what they're doing with what really enhances the life of customers, which might mean doing it cheaper, doing it faster, providing a better service, taking away the pain from me. And then I think the final one that I want to talk about for today is this sense that the technology players themselves have found that by being present in everyone else's activity, they're pulling away from the pack in terms of value creation particularly in terms of share price appreciation. So you see the big five, you know, Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook are worth more than any other company on the planet. And largely that's because they're now present in everything everyone else does, whether you're you know, listening to the radio, watching TV, having a conversation with someone, it's, performing a business transaction. Yeah. 
making a purchase, you're touching one of those companies. Would you call that maybe the platform concept? I mean, in essence, they're platforms. Amazon provides web services. They provide stores. They, you know, they do so much. It's, it's mind boggling. Apple, same way, right? They're, they're present in all of these different things and technology has allowed them to scale so nicely into those uh, areas, right? Platform is part of it. I think the other part is mindset. They've managed to, if you like, impregnate themselves in everyone's mindsets that saying, well, we really need to be working with one of your products or buying one of your products or using one of your services. You know, whether it's brand quality, whether it's product quality, whether it's just ubiquity that everyone's using it, there's this sense that we need to be working with their products. And now with the rise of AI, they're going to be penetrating even further. So the game has changed. In the past, you know, we had railroads, we had banks as the leading businesses in society, but they weren't necessarily present in what everyone did. These players now are literally all pervasive. Mm -hmm. And I think we've because we've never seen that before, we don't know how it will play out. Mm-hmm. But what we can expect is governments trying to break them up. We can expect other financial players deliberately trying to derail them because they don't want one single dominant player in each of the sectors that these guys dominate. So I think that they're central to value creation today, certainly in terms of share price appreciation. It isn't definite that they're creating end value for all the the customers they work with, but certainly the markets are treating them that way. And then the markets tend to over-exaggerate any move in share price up or down when, when they get any kind of information. That shows just how relevant these companies are, how central they are mm-hmm. to trade and commerce today. Yeah. I mean, that is really creating a concentration of wealth, isn't it? Is it a winner-take-all society? I interviewed the author of that book quite a while back, and I, I like the title. I didn't think the interview was that great, but uh, <laughs> it was on the show before. But is that what we're facing with this kind of thing where, you know, since they can touch every area of life, they have the platform, they have the scalability, you know, nobody's going to compete with these companies, are they? Or maybe they will. We can be surprised sometimes, right? Well, right now, there's a feeling that winner is taking almost all, and certainly in terms of the shareholders in these companies doing incredibly well on the back of these companies and the executives. And there's a sense that they might be pulling away from the pack. There are some Chinese companies that are, you know, obviously snapping at their heels, but a very similar model. And then there's the regulators, uh, certainly in the European Union, trying everything they can to break these companies up, to break up their power and to really challenge them. And a desire to see other companies step into the same space and challenge for the provision of those services. One big hope for many is that we'll see a new era of blockchain-based open businesses with different models that really challenge the likes of Google and Facebook in particular. That's to be seen. There's certainly a lot of activity in those spaces, some very interesting ventures coming through, some very different business models. So we could see the power of these businesses challenged. And obviously, history has shown us that whenever an empire rises, there are a lot of forces come together to try and bring that empire down whether it's deliberate or inadvertent. So you're constantly hearing people say, you know, in 10 years, there could be 10 Amazons. Who knows? I think that it will take a lot of skill, a lot of clever marketing and a lot of support for new businesses 
to come up and truly rival those, you know, certainly Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Facebook, I think is, you know, is more at the whim of the consumer. If we all stop using it tomorrow, you know, its business model wouldn't survive. Whereas the others, it's unlikely we'd stop using them just because of how deeply they penetrated our lives. Yeah, yeah. well, and, and Facebook and Google especially, I think, have breached trust so many times. Uh, you know, I think with those two companies, uh, most specifically, I'm actually in favor of the regulators for a change. I usually find myself on the opposite side of the government, but this time <laughs> I want to see one of three things, and I've said it many times before. These companies are so ubiquitous that they either need to be broken up under antitrust or they need to make their algorithms public and open source so everybody knows why we see the results we see when we search something or they need to be regulated like utilities. I mean, you know, the fact that they can censor people and that it just really concerns me. These companies are bigger than most many governments. Why shouldn't they be treated like a utility? One one of those three things has to happen. Maybe all of them, I don't know. Maybe you would disagree. There are different views on this, aren't there? One is these are now the axes of evil, if you like. These companies know what they're doing. They're very deliberate about it and they're making uh, as much money as they possibly can through the surveillance economy, having our data, monitoring our lives, manipulating our lives. There's a second view that says they're slightly more tactical than that. They know what they're doing is wrong, but they're trying to maximize their return for as long as they can. The third is, no, they're misunderstood. They're just trying to do a good job, and every now and then they make a mistake. But really, they're there to benefit the whole of humanity and uh, we need to cut them some slack. And then there's a fourth view is they're just incompetent and that they don't know what they're doing. They're so big now that you've got lots of relatively young people with less experience of the world and less understanding, if you like, of public morals who are just working on their individual projects that turn out to invade privacy or whatever. Every day I kind of flip between all four as to what they are. (laughs) Fair enough. But I think ultimately you will need some regulation from regulators who understand what they do. And and that's the worrying thing. You know, we're surrounded by incompetent, if you like, politicians who who haven't invested the time and effort to truly understand the forces shaping the world, how the global economy works. Sort of like the academics in the ivory towers. They don't don't get it a lot of times. So, yeah, I certainly agree. It's so important that, you know, I think they have to sit back and really understand these technologies and how powerful they are and, and how much potential they have for good, but also how they can be misapplied. And And only then can you do truly smart regulation. Absolutely. Most of our listeners are investors. The vast majority of them are investing. And a lot of them are investing in things like real estate, particularly. They own businesses and so forth, too. But let's take this and maybe shift it into the economy a little bit, to the broader economy, the U.S. economy, the world economy. What does the future look like? You know, in your book, Anticipating 2025, right? This, it's right around the corner. I mean, everything is changing so quickly. Self-driving car technology 
is going to change the real estate game. Just all of these shifts, the, the biohacks and the possibility of tremendously extended longevity, not only lifespan, but health span. These things have huge implications for the broader economy. I mean, what will be the retirement age? How long should people collect uh, the equivalent of Social Security? What do you make of all this? There, there's just so much to digest. It's, it's mind boggling. There is, and, and, and I think you have to split this really into three time frames. One is the sort of far future, the five plus year horizon. And let's call it far future because the world will just change so much in that time frame that any investment in something for that time frame really is purely speculative. Then there's the near term, if you like, the next 12 to 18 months where we wouldn't even pretend to give advice. That's, you know, usual rules apply about how to invest for the near term. The most interesting piece that we're talking to investors about right now is that 18 months to five year window where we're going to see some truly disruptive change coming that will reshape markets, will reshape the way businesses operate, will reshape business models, reshape value chains. And for us at the core of that, what you can latch into if you're doing your analysis is this idea of exponential thinking. People who are doubling or more the performance of whatever they're delivering. And you see three types of exponential thinking, really. One is the people who are coming up with exponentially different ways of doing business. So you're seeing these construction companies like Broad Group in China building these 57-story buildings in 19 days turn the model on its head of how you do construction. They prefabricate in the factory. They put it together on site like Lego, and they manage the whole process. I, I mean, AI. Rohit, I've been studying some of these advanced construction technologies, especially 3D printing, but right. I did not know that they built a 57-story building in how much time? 19 days. Like built for occupancy in 19 days? Were people actually moving in? That's oh, they've built lots of these. You know, just check out Broad Group in China. They're among the leaders in this whole rapid construction thing. But it's not just rapid construction. Mm -hmm. You're seeing 3D printing in construction, but you're seeing 3D printing of cars in the automotive world bringing, you know, an exponential improvement in terms of the speed of design, the speed of manufacture, and dramatically dropping the number of cars you need to produce per factory. So as a general principle, it's looking at the sectors where the operating model can be enhanced exponentially. The second is where people are looking to bring about an exponential improvement in the, the value delivery to customers, and quite often that's either in speed or in price. So they're bringing technology to bear, and you're now seeing people at Western Union who used to charge you 8 or 9% for a money transfer doing it for free. And that's because internally they've gone through a process of radically rethinking the way they do things, relying on technology much more, taking people out of the process and slamming down the timeframes and the cost of delivery. And then the final one is where people are coming up with exponentially different business models for how they do business. So or the results are exponentially different. And you've seen that for a little while now where people like Rolls-Royce don't sell you an engine anymore. You basically rent maintenance from them. 
the revenues have been uh, improved dramatically right. because of that. Through and the subscription seeing, model, right? The, subscription uh, model, the SaaS people, model, and, and then in the future, they, we'll call it the CAS model, car as a service, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it's where people have taken the traditional business model and just said, here's a totally different way of delivering that service to you. So vehicles on demand, you know, we're starting to see those models work now. And, you know, power on demand, lighting on demand from Philips, where people are only charging the end customer, if you like, a fee for usage or a different way of charging for the service that seems to benefit the end customer because they're moving from, you know, lumpy purchase costs to rental costs or whatever. And for the organization, it means we're getting a more continuous flow of revenues. And then you've got the sort of new entrants who are just bringing a different way of thinking so if you take someone like the insurance company trove what they're doing is they're applying the model from websites like tinder or apps like tinder and bumble where you swipe right if you like someone and swipe left if you don't they're applying the same model to charging you for insurance so when you take your watch out of the safe or the cupboard to wear it because it's such an expensive piece you swipe right to start insurance as soon as you put it back you swipe left to stop but it can, it can still be destroyed in the safe obviously but you do this in your own with your own safe i mean uh... your own safe or it could be you've got it in her you know if it's expensive enough it might be in a vault somewhere but you know it's basically you decide when you swipe right to start insuring something and when you swipe left to stop instead of having a just in case insurance policy I now have a just-in-time one where I only pay where I need the service. Right. Interesting. And you're seeing this happen with the rise of these so-called decentralized autonomous organizations. So you might have seen Teambrella in insurance where instead of charging you a premium, they're charging you a tiny transaction fee. You put your money in. You join a pool with other people if someone has a claim. You collectively in that pool agree what you think their claim is worth. And at the end of the year, if there's any money left in your pot, you get it back. So we're seeing but, but the technology. The, wouldn't the incentive with that be for everybody to say, oh, nobody else's claim is worth anything, so there's more in the pot? I mean, they must have figured out a way to work around that. But it, you're seeing well, that you in healthcare. Me, let's which say you is, lost your bicycle. Yeah, yeah. It's in my interest to agree a reasonable price for the, the replacement of your bicycle. Because if I don't, then when it comes to my bicycle being stolen, yeah, you're not going to support me. Yeah, yeah. The other thing is because we're in a pool, you know, and there's only 50 of us, I think, in the pool, I'm incentivized to say, well, actually, I know a local bike dealer. Let me see if I can get your bike from oh, him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, so, interesting. So we're making these kind of bringing social features into these new business models. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the incentive is, look, at if you think long term enough, you don't want the person with the claim to quit next year and leave the pool because you need their premium, right? Now, this is happening in healthcare in the U.S. with things like uh, Liberty Share and, and MediShare. And these aren't really insurance programs. They're health share programs. Right. They seem to be working pretty well. I don't know. The jury's out. But from what I hear, I hear good things. Yeah, and I think the the thing is you have to invest in these sorts of things for the longer term. With a lot of these players really only coming to market in the last 12 months or in the next 12 months, you can't be investing in them expecting them to be delivering you great returns between now and the next 18 months. But longer term, as they build up traction, suddenly these businesses start to throw off a huge amount of cash. Sure. And it's this classic thing that, you know, 
only a few, a few players do survive in any sector. So it's winner takes almost all at the moment. And the ones that kind of make their way through then generate super normal returns because they've built the infrastructure. They've built the networks of suppliers, of customers. And then everything really starts to pay back in quite a significant way. Yeah. Okay. When we look at the broader economy, which is where I was going with this, with all of these incredible efficiencies and this new thinking about business models, this new thinking about from where does value really come? You know, the famous saying we've all heard is about the railroads, right? They thought they were in the railroad business when really they were in the transportation business. Mm. Had they realized that sooner, they'd still be around, right? Is the future more prosperous? Is it inflationary? Is it deflationary? Is it, I mean, what does the future look like for, you know, that average person? Are, are, they, are they going to be better off or uh, worse off? Uh, you know, uh, because a fair part of this discussion, it has to be is, you know, will the robots and will AI take everybody's job? This is sort of a whole nother angle on this. So there's a separate conversation about the impact of these disruptive technologies on job creation and on wealth. And right now, we don't know. There's a lot of great jobs being created for educated people who have some sort of tech background to work in AI and data science and blockchain. So there's an explosion. But if you're being replaced as a lawyer, as a shop assistant, as a, a check-in clerk at an airline, then it's unlikely that you're going to walk straight into one of those jobs doing data analytics in an AI firm. You might retrain for it. So what we could see is a distortion, that some people do very well, that the highly skilled people moving into those sectors could do extraordinarily well. And an awful lot of people who are used to having a good living will struggle for a while while the economy recorrects. We'll probably need something like guaranteed basic incomes, guaranteed basic services to see people over the hump. But we'll probably have to tie that to an accelerated retraining program to move people up the value chain. If we do that, then longer term, things look reasonably rosy for most people. If we don't address the education and skills issue, then we're in deep doo-doo. Okay, so let me ask you about that, because the skeptic in me says, well, how are you going to train the person who had that job in a restaurant that's now been automated or that had that job as any type of driver, whether it be a Lyft or Uber driver or a FedEx driver or whatever truck driver that's now been automated out of a job. I mean, they're not going to become, you know, an AI programmer, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, like, well, a proportion yeah. will, you right. know, okay. because the technology is getting easier to train people to do things with it. But for the majority, I'd say, of your, your drivers, then they're not. But we're going to have to have them learn new skills that have them either create their own job because there will be new businesses created or to work in other new industries where we won't necessarily need the heavy lifting jobs, but we'll need people still. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to really go through an accelerated learning process that isn't based on their past, but based still on their potential. And you see accelerated learning programs do tremendous things. And we need to be teaching them skills like collaboration, problem solving, design thinking, scenario thinking, the skills that will allow them to move from job to job. And we what, what we need to do is get over ourselves. We tend to not pay enough attention to the experiments that work and try and recreate them or, or create new ones. So if you look at places like, you know, Bidwell Training Center, Manchester Craftsman's Guild, Pittsburgh, for years now they've demonstrated how to take, you know, 
unemployed steel workers, illiterate single parents, and retrain them by building faith in themselves first and then giving them the skills so they mm-hmm. can go out and work for Dow Chemical as a development chemist. Yeah, that's pretty Heinz. inspiring. Yeah, very inspiring. You didn't even mention one other thing, is that the biohacking that is likely to take place in the future that will make, that will literally accelerate learning, all of this stuff we're learning about the body and the mind that is going to um, be amazing, right? You know, we may be able to take people and literally make them a lot smarter, right? Mm, I'm pausing there because... (laughs) Maybe not. (laughs) There's a lot of investment going into this whole area of human enhancement, biohacking, human augmentation, whatever you want to call it. And we know that with certain drugs already, nootropic drugs like Ritalin, Adderall, Modafinil, that are meant for sleep disorder and attention deficit disorder. Those have consequences, though. (laughs) They they can enhance mental performance, but they have consequences. Definitely. Similarly, with the electronic stimulation techniques, everything we're talking about, the neural ace to put sensors into your brains, all those things, they're either unproven, you know, as to their genuine long-term functionality, and they're certainly unproven as to their consequences. Right. And so what we don't know is whether this idea of hacking our brains is really going to work long term or are we going to do irreparable damage? Fair enough. But that's only the drug discussion, obviously. And those drugs, I'm I'm no fan of pharmaceutical drugs. Believe me, I'm a huge uh, detractor from that world. But things like functional MRIs, right? Who knows what that will lead to, right? The amazing, I mean, we can literally read minds now almost. We're almost at mind reading stage. We're over-egging the pudding in terms of what we can read in terms of people's brains. But we are making progress which mm-hmm. is great. That's, yeah. that's the good thing. But again, the ability to read someone's mind isn't necessarily going to make them more productive. I, I know. I'm just saying and, if we, if and, we can do what we can do, there's going to be just who knows what's going to come out of that. That's all I'm I saying. I mean, I can hack my body to make myself stronger, to run faster, all those things. But then the question will be, will you choose me as an employee mm, yeah. or will you choose a robot that yeah. doesn't get angry, that doesn't have days yeah. off? That, you know? <laughs> so yeah. actually some of the areas where the body hacking could really enhance humans mm-hmm. are areas where humans might not need to apply in the future. So <laughs> Very true. Yeah. I think we need to give the brain science a chance to see if it can really work to enhance mm-hmm. mental capacity. And that would be a really brilliant thing if... You know, if I could upload into someone's brain the knowledge of how to code, you know, an AI application, be amazing. Yeah. and they'd previously been an Uber driver, you know, that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. But we're a ways off that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no question. Let's wrap it up with the future. Is the future optimistic? I mean, everybody wants to be an optimist, right? But is the standard of living going to just get dramatically better in the future? Or with all the stuff that's going on in the economy, and the debt problems and the derivative bubble, and you know, all of that stuff, which may not be directly your area, I understand. How do you feel about the future? Give us your take. So my feel is it's not an either or it's not good or bad. The reality is we have a really optimistic future in front of us where people could have a better living life, a living standard, where communities are more connected, where we're doing less damage to the planet, we have less toxic politics, and the financial system is genuinely there to serve the economy. However, in order to get there, we have to change a few things. One is the level of education across society needs to be ramped up massively so that people can make better choices. We need to change the whole way in which we recruit politicians 
we need to have them go through some real training in how the world works before they're allowed to take their seat you know, in Parliament, in Congress. <laughs> You'll get 100% agreement on that one, Rohit. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you, you know, you watch now, we're watching this slow motion car crash in the UK called Brexit. Right. And what we see is that largely it's a failure of competence, that people don't know how to deal with things, how to create workable solutions, how to bring people together, how to do things on the basis of where the world is moving to. And so you end up with the nightmares we have. If we change that, then we can use our resources more effectively. We can put in far better governance. We can have much smarter solutions to avoid overshoots on anything, whether it's debt or you know the workings of certain derivatives. We can put far more enlightened uh, mechanisms in to control that. And the big thing I think is around regulation of industries. You know what will destroy us is industries that run rampant. And the best way of doing that regulation has to be to bring players from the industry in to work with the regulators and technology to create really viable solutions and have the members of the industry, you know, effectively pay up on fines or whatever if they go outside the bounds of the industry, but have far smarter technology tracking whether they're doing that. Mm -hmm. And then we keep everyone within bounds and we move along nicely we need to make sure we're making the investment in the industries of the future at the R&D level and at the, the sort of venture creation level. We've talked about skilling and we would need to look at, you know, the role of media in all of this. How do we engage the media in having healthy public conversations about a brighter future where everyone participates? Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Give out your website and information about your books. So the latest book is called A Very Human Future, which is all about how do we enrich humanity in a digitized world. We have three others out called The Future of Business, The Future Reimagined, and one about artificial intelligence, which is called Beyond Genuine Stupidity. And you can find all these books and more about us and the work we do and the speaking and consulting we do at fastfuture.com. Well, that's very interesting. I think the future is a fascinating topic. I've always loved it ever since, uh, you know, the 80s when I started following John Nesbitt's work and megatrends and so forth. And you were probably doing the same back then, I assume. As Yogi Berra said, the future ain't what it used to be. <laughs> no question about that. It's an amazing time to be alive. Rohit, thank you for joining us today. Fascinating discussion. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Music.